We are in a short series that is bringing us up to Christmas. And it's a series in the minor prophets and looking at how the minor prophets connect with the Christmas story. And so to get us where we're going here today, we got to look at a big theme in the book of Malachi that I think is a big theme in our culture today, and that's cynicism. Now, everybody has some idea of a cynic in your life, I'm sure. In fact, normally in a marriage, you'll have one, one that's the cynic, you know, and one that's the, uh, the optimist, and everything's rosy, the other one's the cynic. Normally, not always, right? Or you have somebody in your family who's the cynic, and every time you say something positive or, you know, something, they have something cynical to say about it. And it's hard not to be cynical in our society, I think. I mean, do you remember the time, I, I remembered this, I was thinking about this as I was um, re- preparing for this message, is you remember being a kid, for those of you in the room that are maybe, you know, in high school or, or younger, there was a time when we didn't have cell phones, I know, hard to believe, I remember that time, and I'm not even that old, uh, I remember that time, we didn't have them, in fact, we had these rotary phones, now that was even old school when I was a kid, right, anybody remember a rotary phone? Yeah. Have you ever showed one to a kid? Like our kids, we showed a a normal telephone to a kid and they're like, our kids, they're like, how do you do this? You know, they didn't even know how to do it. But I remember a time as a kid when I was excited to answer the phone. Do you remember that? When the phone would ring and it was like, you're excited. And you'd pick it up because there was probably somebody on the other line who wanted to talk to you and who you liked, you know, and then every once in a while there was a telemarketer but you were excited to pick up the phone. And now let me just ask you a question. If you don't recognize the number coming in on your phone, how many of you answer it? Ah, crazy. Because why? Because you think it's, it's a robocall, right? I mean, everybody's trying to scam you. Everybody's trying to, to somehow advertise to you, to market to you. It's just what we live in, right? And so I, I don't know if you do this too, but I get a call in and especially as we were going through construction, I was getting all these calls from people that weren't in my phone about you know, important stuff and whatever. So I'd always be like, oh, do I answer it? Do I not? It's a, then they trick you. It's like they call in a local number and you pick it up and it's like, hello, you know, your insurance needs a new quote. And you're like, ah, fooled me. And I got one one time. Maybe you've had this as well. I picked it up. I answered it. And the sweepstakes company was on the way to my house. Now, the fact that the caller ID from, was from Jamaica should have maybe clued me in, um, but this was really exciting for me, that the sweepstakes company was on the way to my house until they got around to the point of telling me that I needed to go down to the uh, you know, Western Union and send a little uh, down payment deposit so I could claim the sweepstakes cash here. You know. But it, it, sometimes it gets, it's hard in our society not to be cynical, right? Especially around this time of the year, I think. Cynicism can be very tied in with Scrooge-ism. And I've confessed before, I have a little bit of Scrooge-ism in me. Maybe you do as well, some of you. A lot of you have a lot of Buddy the Elf in them. I have a little Scrooge. <laughs> but cynicism around this time of year, right? Because and, and, when, you're, when you're young, when you're a kid, you remember the feeling of just... Christmas is so tied up with presents. We're like talking to our kids about this right now. You know, Christmas isn't all about presents. And then you say, well, maybe this year we won't do presents. And it's like, <gasps> and then you're like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm a bad parent. You know, we'll do presents. Don't, don't worry. 
But you remember the feeling of being a kid and just having that thing that you wanted so bad. And then either like your uncle and aunt gave you socks. (laughs) And now you're actually like, I could use some new socks, right? But then it was like, socks. And you're just disappointed and it let you down. Or you got that new shiny thing that you really wanted. And it made you so happy for 15 minutes. And then you woke up the next morning and the sugar crash was, was, came on, right? And you were depressed and there was this letdown. And we all, I think, experienced that to some degree around the holidays. And so some of you have become very cynical about even like engaging or feeling anything around the holidays because of hurts, you know? I mean, think about your relationships, right? There's all these sappy Christmas specials. I know you call them good Christmas movies. I call them sappy specials. I looked it up. Hallmark has 136 out, and they, they released 40 Christmas specials just this year. And I know from the ladies' heads nodding and smiling that you, that's like not upsetting to you. And every one of these like Christmas specials, you know, I mean, they're pretty much the same, right? They offer you a hope of what your life could actually really be like and the happily ever after. And you usually have like picture perfect kids and wise, kindly parents and these good bosses and cheerful neighbors, all these things. You know, there's this warm feeling. And then you look at your life and you're like, man, my kids are off the rails. My parents are just crazy. (laughs) Not mine, maybe yours. Or totally selfish, right? My boss, <laughs> I don't even want to start talking about my boss, right? And your neighbors are just mean. It's like, come on, my dog barked twice. And you called the police, really? And it's not this cheery thing, right? And pretty soon it's easy to get cynical about the relationships in our life. Or your leaders in life, right? Right? I mean, every time you turn around, another religious leader or pastor is doing something stupid, political leader, business leaders, and pretty soon it's easy to start getting cynical and going, well, they all must be there. And we get this attitude of just waiting, sitting back and waiting for someone to disappoint us, right? I had this, uh, this thing. I mean, if some of you that are young in the room, you'll know Kanye West, right? And it's really... Amazing to watch as he's this big superstar rapper for those that are um, not so young in the room and just found Jesus. And God's using him in some pretty incredible ways. He, he decided he was only gonna do like music about Jesus and, and at his concerts, which were formerly like, you know, vulgar and stuff. Now he's leading like hundreds of people to Jesus and so as a pastor, there's part of me like, wow, that's amazing. But I got to admit, there's this cynic in me too. That's just like standing back going, is this real? Is this genuine? I mean, how long is this really going to last? Is this just Hollywood? And, and here's the hard part about that is I'm a pastor. I believe that God changes lives, that he transforms people. I mean, have you ever heard of the, the Apostle Paul? And yet, why am I so cynical that maybe he would do this with this, this, this big music guy? I don't know. It's easy to be cynical, isn't it? 
Maybe your life isn't progressing the way you hope. You know, maybe you just graduated from college a couple of years ago, and instead of the big career opportunity you thought it would lead to, you know, you're like, your life's going, feels like it's going nowhere. You're like, I'm still living in my parents' basement. And it just isn't going the way that you thought, you know? We have this idea in our culture, it's just the way we're raised, it's part of the American dream, that everything always goes forward, that progress is always forward, that everything in our life is always supposed to be getting more, you know, more money, more stuff, more success. And it's so, because of this, when we experience those seasons, when life just feels like it's going the wrong direction, it's very easy to get cynical. It's very easy to lose our trust in God, lose our hope in God. You know, cynicism really is doubt expressed. It's unmasking the seemingly positive appearance of something to unveil what we think is the the dark truth underneath, right? It's at root a negative judgment about someone or something or a situation. The first person to be labeled a cynic was an ancient Greek philosopher named Diogenes. And he argued that wisdom was found in unmasking others. That others had, you know, primarily others will have a deeper, darker, selfish motive behind it. And wisdom is finding, found in unmasking that and getting to that. In fact, instead of just being like a philosophy, a Greek philosophy, he said, no, no, no. Here's what cynicism is. It's the voice of doubt. That voice inside your head that goes, I don't think they're really who they appear to be. And so instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, I'm going to act like they're who I actually suspect they are. It's the voice of doubt. And cynicism in our lives often leads to cynicism with God. Where you ask questions like, I, I just, you think things like, I just don't know if he's there. I just don't know if... He cares, right? This series is called The Silent Years because there was a period of 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament where the prophetic voice of God goes silent. And some of you have had seasons in your life where you just feel like your prayers are just sort of dropping to the ground and not even going anywhere, never even heard. Like, it's just radio silence, right? Like we talked about last week. Like God is ghosting you. Like, does it, did it really make that big of a difference? So a baby was born 2,000 years ago. Did it really make that big of a difference in my life today? And, I mean, in, in, in our culture, even the bigger question is, is following Jesus, is committing our lives to Jesus, is it even like a good thing for us? Is it even a good thing for society? I mean, the first Christmas was announced as good news. And yet, the cynicism for so many people is, I don't know if this is even good, right? And we're not alone in history. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can turn over to the book of Malachi. Malachi is one of the minor prophets, and he's, minor prophets aren't minor because they're not important. They're minor because they're very short. And he actually writes the last book in the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, the last prophetic word before this period of 400 years. And at this point, just so you understand what's happening, back in the land of Israel, the people that were exiled are now back in their land, the kingdom of Judah. 
And they've rebuilt the temple, but it's really pathetic compared to the original version that Solomon built. Progress actually, where there's all these promises in their scriptures from all these prophets of this golden age when you know, God would bring them back from exile, the messianic age that's prophesied. When, when all this amazing stuff would happen, there'd be amazing peace and prosperity. God is going to bless in all these different ways, and yet they're not experiencing that. In fact, progress feels like it's going backwards. Instead of this glorious messianic age, they're experiencing poverty, drought, financial troubles, and they were disillusioned with God. Because of this cynicism entered their hearts, and they began to doubt that it was really even worth it as, at, at all. And maybe God didn't really care about them at all. And so the book of Malachi starts out by them really doubting God's love. Here's, here's a couple of the kinds of things that they said. This is right how the book starts out. It says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And here's really the question, at the heart of this question they're answering is, when I look at my life, I know I heard the words, God loves me, but my life, when I look at circumstances in my life, I just don't know if that's true. And so they ask the same question we ask frequently, whether we vocalize it or not, and that's, does God really love me? Does God really love me at all? I've heard God is love, but does he really love me? Seems like he's blessing other people. He must care about these other people, but I don't really think God really cares about me. They also said this just a little bit later in the book, and it's a short book. They said this, you have said it's futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. See them over there? They look like they're blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. And what they're asking is the same question that we often ask as cynicism and doubt enters our heart when it comes to our relationship with God. And that question is, is serving God really worth it? Is it really worth it? I look around and, you know, I've got these colleagues and they're willing to cut corners and they're making a lot more money than me. I'm not willing to cut corners that I feel like violate ethics and my pocketbook's suffering. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth it? Is it really worth living my moral life? Uh, you know, by God's standards, I look around and they seem pretty happy over there doing it that way. Is it really worth it? Is it really worth investing time in serving? I mean, there's so many great things you could do on a weekend. Is it really worth it, right? Then they said this a little while later. God says this, about them. You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord, and he is pleased with them. Or, where's the God of justice? Where's the God of justice? Like, now they're saying, does God really love me? Does he really? I don't think God's pleased with me. We're trying to serve him, but look at those people over there. They seem to be really blessed, and they don't serve God at all. In fact, they serve foreign idols, but they're blessed. So maybe God really likes them and not me. Maybe God likes them and not us. And in all that, you know, these people mistreating people over here, you know, cheating people, 
They seem to be doing fine, so maybe God really likes them. Where's the justice in all this? Where's the God of justice? There's been all these promises up till now in the Hebrew Scriptures and all throughout the prophets, which is this huge section of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament, all these prophets about the God of justice finally bringing justice to this earth. Where is he? Why is it not happening? And they really ask a question that you know, we often ask when it comes to our life. And that's this, if God is really good, why is my life like fill in the blank? God is really good. Why is my life like this? Why does this happen? Now, here's the thing. When it comes to questions like this, it's not bad to ask questions. It's not bad to feel some of these feelings and express them, especially as you look at some of the scriptures and then what God's promised. I mean, we can see how they get there, right? In fact, a lot of these statements feel a lot like a lot of the Psalms. But here's the big difference. If you've read the Psalms of David or the other um, songwriters, sometimes it's just like, they're asked like really hard questions. Like, where is God? All these same things. Like, it seems like the evildoers are the ones that are prospering. Where's God in all this? Oh God, my circumstances are so lousy. Where are you? But the difference between the Psalms of David and these questions is that the cynicism in their hearts have kept them from doing something critical that David did, and that's that he did not let cynicism, he asked the hard questions, but he did not let cynicism turn into poisoning his relationship with God because he always came back around to, I don't know, I don't get it, but I trust you, God. I don't know, I don't get it, but your love endures forever, I know that. I don't know, I don't get it, I don't have all the answers. Yeah, it looks like they're, they're prospering, but I know there's gonna be a day, I just trust there's gonna be a day when God's gonna make it all right, when he's gonna sort all this out. And that's a big, important, critical difference. Because as they allowed cynicism to take over in their hearts, they just quit following God. I mean, they kind of still went through the motions, you know. They'd show up at church every once in a while, or, you know, the temple in the Old Testament, right? They'd show up, they came, they'd sing the songs, most likely the same songs that, you know, songs that were written by David in the Psalms, like, your love endures forever. But they didn't really, they, they sang the words, but it really wasn't on their heart. They didn't really believe what they were singing. It was just words to them. God had detailed what worship to him what pure worship looked like. He had, he had told them, instructed them in, in his scriptures that you come, you bring a blameless offering. And they kind of decided, ah, that's not so important. The cynicism created a doubt, like, is it really even worth serving God? And so they still went through the motions, but they figured, you know what, let's bring the sick and the, and the blind and the lame animals, the ones we don't even want anyway, we'll bring those and offer them to God and keep all the good stuff for ourselves. They went through the motions, but their hearts weren't in it. They decided it was not that important to honor God by being faithful in their marriages and faithful in their moral lives. God had commanded them in the Old Testament that they bring tithes and offerings. And they concluded that honoring and obeying God with their resources, yeah, it's just not worth it. And God confronts them. He says, you're robbing me. You're robbing me. 
The priests and the leaders, they showed partiality when it came to the law. They twisted it for their own benefit. This is the kind of thing that was going on in these people that were disillusioned, cynical, about where's God? Does he love me? Does he care? And so Malachi's prophetic word confronts a people who are skeptical of God's promises and, and cynical about God's promises and in fact have allowed that to lead them to become just indifferent about serving God. And he calls them to come back to God with all their heart, to worship God, to serve him. He says things like this, return to me and I will return to you. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses. In their relationships, he says, be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful. As far as their resources were concerned, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then he says, test me in it. Test me and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out the blessing. Test me. In other words, he says, you can trust me. Return to me. Serve me. And I know you're disillusioned because you don't understand why things aren't as good as they are, but instead of allowing that to, to have you seek me, you've allowed that to just make you walk away from me. And so right in the middle of this book, that's all this correction confronting their hard hearts and correcting them. Right in the middle of all this, God steps in to remind the people that he will keep the promises they're so cynical about. That he will keep the promises of the Messiah. But at this part, they're wondering if that's ever going to happen. And it's a promise in a section of scripture that carries a great hope, but it also carries a warning. And just at this point in this verse in in verse 217, the people ask, where's the God of justice? Where's the God of justice? Where are you, God? Is God ever going to come? Is God ever going to make this right? And right in the middle of that, God says this, Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger. I will. Don't doubt. I know you're cynical. I know you don't see the messianic age coming. I know, you know, you don't know how all this life works together, but I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant who you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, he says, guess what? My promise that I will come and I'm gonna redeem the people and and I'm gonna bring justice, it's gonna happen. I will do it. No ands, ifs, or buts, it's gonna happen. In my way, my time, right? He's gonna come. Verse two, he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. In other words, when he comes, he's gonna come to save, but he's also gonna come to purify and refine his people. In fact, 12 times in the scriptures, God is referred to as a refining fire. What, we, what they would use to refine gold or to refine silver and, and burn away the impurities and leave the pure thing. Or the fuller's soap, the launderer's soap, which is literally like a mild bleach solution, an alkaline solution. And, and here's how they would do laundry. They would take them, they would soak them with some of this mild, soapy kind of detergent. And then they would pull it out and hang it up to dry 
and then they would beat it and the dirt would fall to the ground. A little different image than our washing machine, right? But that's what they would think of in this. He's like a refining fire. He's like a fuller's soap. And so the message is when God comes, he's going to purify his people. He's going to make them holy. In fact, 1 Peter, he says, in all this, in suffering, in all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In other words, there's circumstances that are allowed in your life sometimes to refine you. Sometimes because there's something that the Holy Spirit needs to do in your heart and in your life to, bring you, to make you holy, to make you more like Jesus. And there's other times when trials are allowed into your life actually because they prove the genuineness of your faith. They grow your faith up. And it says they'll be rewarded when Jesus comes back. Verse three, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. He says there's gonna be a time when, when the offerings are again acceptable when the praise and the worship is acceptable to God. And this reminds me of a time where Jesus is, is standing by a well talking with this woman, the Samaritan woman, which is a shocking scene. And the disciples can't believe it when they come back from getting some food for lunch. And there Jesus is talking to this woman who, you know, a rabbi would never talk to, but Jesus is talking to her. And she's asking because the Samaritans had a whole nother temple that they'd built and set up. Like, where do we need to worship? Do we worship in Jerusalem or do we worship there? And Jesus says this incredibly profound statement. He said, a time is coming and now has come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And you see, when we see this people in Malachi that's just going through the motion, oh, they're still bringing the sacrifices, but their hearts aren't behind it. It was always about the heart. All throughout the, the Old Testament. I mean, people were always justified by faith, their trust in God. And the way they demonstrated that faith and trust was obedience to God, right? By offering sacrifices, which were only a temporary annual way to cover sins. And Jesus says there's a time coming when true worshipers are going to worship in spirit and in truth. In fact, Paul tells us, he says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual act of worship. That for us as followers of Jesus, this pure worship, this worship in spirit and truth is really literally coming to Jesus and saying, my life is yours. We think about it in the context of music, which we love. And that's a very valuable aspect of worship and praise to God. But it's a much bigger thing than that. It's literally about living our lives and every day daily offering our lives to Jesus and saying, my life is yours. What do you want to do with me? My life is a blank check. Where do you want to write it? 
You have my heart. You have my affection. Verse five. So I will, again, I will. This is going to happen. Be assured of it. I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. In other words, God says there's going to be a time where everything's made right. There's going to be a time when God sorts it all out. There's going to be a time where justice happens. Every time there's a national disaster or some kind of like, you know, horrible event, you hear things like, you know, everybody says, oh, our prayers are with you. And then you hear like cynical comments coming back, don't you? Well, what good is prayer going to do? God obviously isn't fixing this. And there's this thing in every one of our hearts that wants God to wipe out injustice. Wants us, him to wipe out evil, right? And God promises there's gonna be a day when that happens. There's this thing in us that wants justice. But have you ever noticed this? We, we, we're, not, we're much more concerned about justice as a sort of idea than we are about God wiping out our sin, I mean, we want God to wipe out evil. But when we're honest about the evil that resides inside of us and the sin, um, we'd prefer mercy for us. We'd prefer grace for us, right? And for our, our close loved ones. We want justice for everyone else. We want grace for us. And the truth is, in Jesus, grace and mercy are freely offered for everyone. Why doesn't God wipe out injustice and evil right now because he'd have to wipe out every one of us. There will be a time when it's all sorted out. And here's the cool thing. The people in Malachi, they listen to this and there's a faithful remnant of the people that respond and say, we're gonna obey God. Check this out. Malachi 3.16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. In other words, they got together and said, we're going to do this. We're going to come back to God. We're going to return to him. We're going to be careful to follow him. Verse 17, on the day when I act, again, it's going to happen. You can trust that I will fulfill the promises I've made. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And Jesus is very, very clear in his teachings that there will be a reward for following him. That those who are faithful to him, those that follow him faithfully, there will be a reward. He says multiple times, your reward for those going through hard times and persecution who stay faithful and faithfully serve him in spite of that, who don't allow the cynicism to cause them to quit following, to check out, to hit the unfollow button. When it comes to Jesus, he said, there's gonna be an incredible reward. He says multiple times, your reward in heaven will be great. And so Malachi closes out his little four-chapter book this way. See, again, another promise. See, I will send the prophet Elijah 
to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And as Malachi pens these last words and as he sets down the the feather pen and picks up the scroll and blows on it and dries the ink and then rolls it up, the final prophetic words of the Hebrew scriptures of our Old Testament are closed. And what follows are 400 years of silence. Now, just because the prophetic voice is silent for 400 years doesn't mean that God wasn't active during that time and doesn't mean that God was actively moving in many ways in the lives of those who trusted him. Hanukkah is a great example of that. But the prophetic voice of God goes silent for 400 years. And can you imagine living through that 400 years? It'd be pretty easy to become cynical after this last writing. He said he'll do it, but now we're like 100 years past this. And then they have this brief hope as the Maccabees, you know, finally they have their own king on the throne and that only lasts for a very short period of time. And then again, they're under the, th- the thumb of another foreign ruler, another foreign kingdom. And all these things that have been promised just don't seem like they're coming to pass. It's so easy to let the cynicism, just like in Malachi's day, take over, to check out, to click, to click the unfollow button and say, I'm not going to follow God. It's just not worth it. Where is God? Where's the God of justice? Where are his promises? But here's the thing. During these 400 years, there was a faithful remnant. In the midst of that nation, there's a remnant of people that were faithful to follow God, to not lose hope, to not let cynicism come in and cause them to stop following. And it's a beautiful thing because they maintained hope for 400 years. And in the midst of that, we see 400 years later, out of the silence, says this in Luke 1, 5. And here's the tie into Christmas because this is a Christmas series, right? In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Now get this. Talk about two people who should be cynical. Two people whose cynicism should have caused them to to quit hoping, to quit waiting on God to fulfill. But they didn't let that happen. Even though they were very old, they'd never had children, which is still a big deal in our culture. It's very difficult for for couples who want to have kids and can't, right? But, but, but then it was so much worse because then it was seen not just as you know, their security when they're in their old age, it was that, but it was also people thought that God was disappointed and upset with you. It was a judgment from God. It was seen as that. And yet, in spite of that, they didn't allow their hearts to become cynical. They trusted, they waited, and hoped. And one day, as Zechariah is serving in the temple, In the months leading up to the first Christmas, the angel Gabriel appears to him 
And it says this. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, which by the time, wait, every time an angel appears, they say that, which leads me maybe to be a little cynical of those that say they've, you know, oh, an angel appeared to me and you weren't freaked out? <clears throat> Sorry, just a little pastoral cynicism. Um, I'm sure they, you know, don't have to freak people out. But the angel arrived and said, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your, prayers have, your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you are to call him John. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on, listen to this language, before the Lord in the spirit and power of who? Elijah. Oh, wait, we just read that. I mean, it was written 400 years ago. That's the last thing. That's the thing we've been waiting for. He'll come in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient, disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. And of course, you know that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. And after this amazing baby was born, Zechariah, who wasn't able to speak because he doubted the word of the angel, he asked, angel, what will be the sign? Hello, I'm Gabriel. I'm standing in front of you telling you this. That's your sign. And so, so you want a sign? All right, you can't speak for the next like six, eight months because dumb things like that come out of your mouth. <laughs> so anyway, after the baby's born, he holds up this baby and he has this amazing prophecy over this child, John. He says this, and you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to what? Prepare the way for him. Oh, we just read that. To give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the path of peace. And that's exactly what happened. 30 years later, John would be the one, as he's baptizing, who would look up and see Jesus walking by. And he would say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus would talk about John, and he'd go, actually, you know who, who John was, a prophet? Yeah, you better believe it. He says, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way before you. And the promise God made, he kept. And all throughout that period, as they waited and hoped, there was a remnant that didn't allow cynicism to cause them to quit following God, to check out, to just go through the motions. But they leaned in. And they followed God and they trusted him. And that's the challenge before us today. In whatever season of life you find yourself in, because the faithfulness of God to fulfill his promises at the very first Christmas that were made hundreds of years before, and then the fact that Jesus predicted his own death and resurrection and pulled it off means that you and I can trust God.
that what he's promised to you and I, the eternal hope, the eternal reward, in spite of what we're going through, in spite of the fact that life doesn't necessarily match up right now, that that's all true and you can trust him. And so we started with three questions. Does God really love me? And here's the answer. Is God really loves me? Because he's kept his promises in the past incredibly, and he will keep his promises. He, he loves you, and you know how he knows you, you know he loves you? If there's any doubt in your mind, he proved it on the cross. As Jesus gave his life for you, he really loves you. In fact, God so loved you and me and the world so much that he gave his only son. Is it really worth serving God? Serving God is so worth it. It's so worth it. You can trust him. In spite of the fact that it doesn't always add up in the here and now, you can trust him. It is worth it. There will be a day that will be so immeasurably beyond anything you can anticipate right now. When you'll be so glad that you served him and followed him. If God is really is good, why is my life like this? And here's what you got to remember if that's where you're at right now. God is good even when I don't understand life. He is good even when I don't understand life. Would you stand? The reason Jesus came was to offer life. And there will be a day when he will come again and sort it all out. And a day when you stand before him. And he's given you the way that you can stand before him with confidence as one of his own. And that's by placing your faith and trust fully in him. And so let's bow our heads and close our eyes. And if any in the room, as, as I've shared this, you just feel God tugging at you. We believe that's the Holy Spirit inviting you to trust him. And you can just pray a prayer like this out loud right now, right after me. Lord Jesus, I believe you're the son of God. I believe you died and rose again. Forgive me of my sin. I can't do it on my own. Welcome me into your family and make me one of your own. I love you. Lord, for all my other friends, I just ask that you would just show them in whatever circumstance they're in, confirm in their heart how much you love them and how worth it it is to devote their lives to serving you and how good you are, even in the midst of circumstances they may not understand. Lord, I pray your blessing on them. Great faith and hope in the name of Jesus. Amen.